You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 19. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent taken it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he, is a de- he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words this morning. We thank you for Pastor Ethan, and we just pray that our hearts and our minds will be open to what you have for us this morning. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. If you have a sports hero, it's probably not not because when the game was on the line, they were on the sidelines sitting on the bench. Probably not because when it came down to it, when they were needed most, they froze. They buckled under the pressure, pressure. You probably don't have a sports hero because of how much money they make. Chances are you have a sports hero because when it mattered most, they did something great. Jesus was talking about someone who did something great when it mattered most, and that was John the Baptist. We learn a lot from this passage and what he has to teach us about John and about us today in this passage in Matthew. Just as a quick review, we're progressing through the book of Matthew. In fact, it was a year ago, uh, Christmas time, we started the book of Matthew. We're going to make it through chapter 11 in a year. So just do the math. We're going to be in Matthew for a while, but it's good. It's going to be, I mean, there's greatness yet to come. Where we are so far is we've been spending a lot of time with Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He specifically told us many things, uh, guidelines, things to live by. We spent some time talking about specific promises and, and, and miracles that he gave us and he showed us and what they meant. We talked about his mission, how he was preparing his disciples for the mission. And then we're getting into a phase where there's a little bit of increased opposition to Jesus and to his kingdom. And we talk about that a little bit more today. So starting in verse 7, what is this passage? What is, what is Matthew writing for us to learn today? Jesus, as he sent away John the Baptist's disciples, remember they came, asked him, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus said, yes, I'm the one. He sent them back. And then he uses the opportunity to kind of expand on this. And he looks at him and he says, why did you go see John? Why did you go out to the wilderness and go out of your way to see John. And he uses rhetorical questions. Was it because he was a reed shaking in the wind, meaning because he didn't have any conviction or constitution, he was just blown 
this way and that way, depending on what the cultural influence was. No, you went out because of his strength and his conviction and his boldness. Did you go out because he was in soft clothes? What he means by that is rich. Did you go out because he was someone you thought that would make you wealthy? He was wealthy and he thought he could make you wealthy? No, they went because of his humility, his simplicity, his honesty. Jesus is clearly defining John's character. He wasn't weak. He wasn't wavering. He wasn't withdrawn from society. He was the real deal. And this affirms what we talked about last week. John's question of Jesus, are you the, real, are you the one, wasn't out of lack of faith or in weakness. It was because his expectations were not lined up with Jesus' actual activities. So he talks about John, and then he says in verse 9, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, you went out to see a prophet, but not just any prophet, the prophet of prophets. Uh, you didn't see a politician. This is the greatest prophet ever. Now, if you were a good Jewish kid and you had your prophet trading cards, if they had such a thing, you had Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Daniel, and they were all great. What Jesus is saying is John the Baptist is greater than all the prophets. He is the prophet of prophets. Not because of his miracles, not because of his achievements. I mean, think about what Moses did, what Elijah did. It wasn't because of his exploits. It's because John the Baptist was the immediate forerunner to the Messiah. He had a unique privilege and responsibility to be the one who came right before Jesus came. The other ones kind of showed the way toward Messiah. John the Baptist prepared the way directly for Jesus. So he was not just an ordinary prophet. But look at what Jesus says. This is important. This is one of those little beautiful golden nuggets in Scripture. In verse 10, he says, he, he quotes, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. This is a quote from Malachi chapter 3. And what's that? Malachi 3 says in the Old Testament, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, in Malachi, this is the Old Testament, when it says, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's me? Who's talking here? God. God is the one who's presenting this through the prophet Malachi. So God is saying, I'll send a messenger. He's going to come before I come. So who's coming? God's coming, right? That's what this prophecy says. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, I send my messenger before your face. So he's quoting the prophecy, but he's interpreting it to be what? Remember the Old Testament that said God is going to be coming and John the Baptist is going to come first? It's me. I'm right here before your face. He is unambiguously and intentionally claiming to be God who has come to them. This is an incredibly powerful statement. He's, he's claiming to be God, and he's laying it out there for people to show them, which is what he continues to do in verse 11, when he says, <clears throat> when he talks about John the Baptist, he says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Jesus makes a distinction here. First of all, he says how great John is. In fact, he's even more, not just the greatest prophet, he's the greatest man to be born up to this point, which is pretty amazing. And then he says, but someone who is the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Jesus is making a distinction about being out of the kingdom versus being in the kingdom. Being born of a woman versus being born of God. The difference is this. John had a unique, privileged responsibility. 
He was the forerunner. He was the one to prepare the way for Jesus, but he wasn't actually in the kingdom. He came before the kingdom. He saw Jesus, but he didn't see his death and his resurrection. He didn't see the full gospel play out. And what Jesus is saying is that someone who knows Jesus, who believes in his life, death, his resurrection, his ascension, who can proclaim the full gospel, who has the Holy Spirit in them, is greater than John because he wasn't actually in the kingdom. So he's not just talking about how great John is. He's reminding us of what a privilege, what a joy it is to actually be in the kingdom like we as believers are now. It is a great privilege. So Jesus isn't necessarily making a distinction about John's salvation. He's not talking about John, whether John's saved or not. John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but he's also the last of the Old Testament believers. And Jesus makes a distinction between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. What do I mean by that? Well, this is a question that I get asked fairly regularly, actually, when people are looking at the Bible, when they kind of realize the gospel, and it says, you got to believe in Jesus to be saved. And they, they read all these stories from the Old Testament, and they think, they didn't know Jesus. Are they saved? What about Moses and Abraham and David and all of the Old Testament? They, they didn't know Jesus. But what happens to them? That's a good question. The Bible actually talks about this. So Jesus isn't talking about John's salvation, just his position, like where he falls in the timeline. If you go to Romans 3, Romans 3 helps us with this question. What happens to Old Testament believers? Are they, are they Christian? Are they believers or not? Are they saved? Romans 3, verse 25, talks about this specifically. It talks about Jesus Christ. This is Paul writing to the Romans. He said, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God initiates this. He initiates the salvation. And he put Jesus forward as a propitiation. This is a big Bible word, but it's an important Bible word. Propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that receives the punishment so someone else can receive grace instead. It's, it absorbs the wrath so that instead of wrath, you get grace. Jesus is that punishment. He is the propitiation. He bore the wrath. He bore the sin so we could get God's grace instead. So God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, as the sacrifice to receive the punishment so we didn't have to. And this is received by faith. We are saved by God's grace through faith. Then he goes on to say this was to show God's righteousness, meaning he was right and he was good, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. What does that mean? Remember in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, it talks a lot about the sacrificial system where they sacrificed animals at the, at the, on the altar, and this is a way that they would make a, a payment of, of sorts for their sins. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the priests would put their hands on the sacrifice and in a sense symbolically putting the sins of the nation on the animal. They would sacrifice the animal and God received that sacrifice temporarily and chose by his mercy not to punish people for their sin because they were obedient and they were faithful in offering these sacrifices. Well, that didn't solve the problem. We know that didn't solve the problem because they had to keep offering the sacrifices over and over and over again every year. So these sacrifices were God's way of keeping their sin in front of them, of showing them the need for a sacrifice for their sin, but also pointing them to the one who would actually take away their sin. 
So when it says in God's forbearance, he passed over former sins, he chose not to punish the sinners in the Old Testament until his punishment could be poured out on Jesus on the cross. He was the final sacrifice, the propitiation that received the wrath and punishment of God. So every person who believed in the Old Testament, who believed and trusted in God, they're still saved by Jesus, just like everyone that comes after Jesus. Everyone looks to Jesus for salvation, whether it's before him or after him. It was a matter of God in his forbearance, choosing to not punish them until he could put his wrath upon Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, if you're thinking about the Bible timeline, well, that covers Moses, because Moses gave the law, and that was the whole sacrificial system. What about before Moses? There were people, important people before Moses, like, I don't know, Abraham? Well, that's where Romans 4 comes in. If you keep reading through Romans 4, Paul says, Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this, and Paul makes a big point here about Abraham was saved by God, not because he made sacrifices, but because he had faith. And that's the faith in God and his, in, in that God would come and give them salvation was what saved, was credited to Abraham. So even before the law, people were still saved by faith in a God who would forgive their sins because of Jesus, who would be the sacrifice. So the that's the blessing. That's the reality of being in the kingdom now is that we can look back and see fully how Jesus manifested himself and gave himself as a sacrifice, rose again, and sent the Holy Spirit. That, Jesus says, is more privileged, is more blessed than being the greatest in the Old Testament when they were still looking forward to when that would happen. And Jesus talks very directly and soberly in verse 12, starting in verse 12. He basically says, there's violence coming. John preached, I'm preaching, the resistance is going to increase. The violence and the opposition is going to increase. They hated John. They hated Jesus. Many people wanted to, they opposed him, they plotted against him, they arrested him, both of them, and killed both of them. They both taught a hard message. They raised a high bar of repentance and righteousness and holiness and it unsettled many people who were very comfortable. And then Jesus, again, just lays it out in verse 13. The Old Testament, the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The Old Testament points to John. John points to me. It's all right here. When you're teaching a, a kid, a young child, how to hit a ball, hit a baseball, you don't stand all the way back on the mound and throw it as hard as you possibly can, hoping they're going to hit it. What do you do? You get as close as you can safely with the ball and you just you toss it. Watch the ball. You just toss it as easily as you can so they can see it and hit it. And you build a little confidence and then you move away. Jesus is essentially saying, listen guys, it's right here. He's tossing it to them. You can see it. It's all in front of you. The Old Testament pointed to John. John's pointed to me. I'm the Messiah. Believe. It's here if you'll believe. And that's why it's so important that he, he, in verse 14, that he says, if you're willing to accept it, Elijah has come. He would say it again in Matthew 17. He says, Elijah has already come, and they knew he was talking about John the Baptist. Why is this so important? Because the people at this, at this time were clamoring. They were desperate for someone to come and rescue them. They were calling out for the Messiah. And he's showing them, 
Okay, I'm telling you, Elijah came, and you know what that means. Because if you go back to the final verses of the Old Testament, you know that very first time before when you turn from the Old Testament to Matthew, that page, the last verses in Malachi chapter 4, what does it say? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Jesus is telling him, he's here, he came, it's John the Baptist. I'm here, I'm the one who's going to bring the day of the Lord both the blessing on those who are faithful and the judgment on those who reject. He's connecting the dots. That's why he says, he who has ears to hear, he who is willing to humble themselves and see this for what it is, is going to be blessed for their hearing. In verse 16, Jesus speaks very directly and very frankly. He flat out tells them, Some of you guys will never be happy with this message no matter how it's delivered, no matter how it's spoken. And he uses these metaphors to talk about how John the Baptist and Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. They did it very differently. They had a different style, a different approach, but the response was the same. Many people rejected them. It's like Jesus fired up the playlist, the Spotify playlist, and he's going to try all the channels. And he says, we played wedding music for you, you didn't dance. We played funeral music for you, you didn't mourn. John came calling people to fast, and you said he was too extreme. Jesus came and and had celebrated and had feasts with people. They said he was too extravagant. John aggressively called people out to repent of their sin and turn from their wickedness. Jesus graciously invited people, come, you're burdened, you're heavy laden. He invited them to joy and freedom, and they rejected him too. John was too bold. Jesus was too kind. John was too harsh. Jesus was too gracious. John was too extreme. Jesus was too taboo. He did things that were not acceptable. John didn't have enough fun. Jesus had too much fun. They weren't happy. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's no excuse. You don't have any excuse. You heard it John's way. You heard it my way. And you still rejected. There's still some who don't have ears to hear. And this is It's John the Baptist who Jesus just said is the greatest human to have been born up to that time. And it's Jesus himself speaking the most pure, clear gospel that can be spoken. And they walked away. We we have to face that reality today. That's true today. Some people do not have ears to hear. They wouldn't even if Jesus were here himself or if John was here himself. They, they're, they're not re- just rejecting you if you're talking to people about Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus himself. So we keep praying, we keep loving them and presenting the gospel in word and deed. And Jesus says, the last phrase here, wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's just saying the truth is going to be played out in the end. They'll see the truth in you now or they'll see the truth later when Jesus comes back. One way or the the other, God's wisdom will be proven in how the gospel has been presented and proclaimed and the kingdom has been announced. It will be good and it will be righteous. So this is a passage that kind of goes all over the place, but there's a few things we need to draw out of this for ourselves. First of all, I want to talk about the nature of prophets. The nature of prophets. Jesus tells us what John is not. He describes John's character and says, these are the things you didn't go out to see someone who is just flapping in the wind and wears soft clothes. But by doing that, he actually also teaches us about what to watch for in false teachers and false prophets. So, 
taken from that passage, we need to be careful of teachers or prophets who are famously flaky in the sense that they don't have conviction, a foundation, they flip-flop based on outside influence. And this happens all over the place. You look at leaders, Christian leaders on TV, writing books. If it's about politics or the economy or wealth or health or whatever sells subscriptions and books, they are um, opportunistic when it comes to saying what people want to hear. So they'll write a book, this is God's will for men, this is God's will for women, this is God's will for plumbers, this is God's will for pets. It's whatever happens to be the need at the time. They find themselves flip-flopping and, and going with the cultural influence and following fads. Beware of teachers and prophets who are famously flaky. Then I would say also, beware of teachers who are focused on fortune. This is that wearing soft clothing, if they get extremely wealthy from their ministry, they flaunt clothes and jewelry and cars and planes and mansions. They live in extravagance. Does that sound at all anything like any prophet you read about in the Old Testament? How many prophets lived in palaces, walked around in the nicest clothes? Sometimes they didn't have many clothes, if any, and their diet was anything but uh, appetizing. They had a different priority. They represented God's priorities. His priorities were way different. And so people who flaunt these excesses and extravagances are showing that they do not actually line up with God's priorities. Because the Bible never promises us comfort in this world, worldly wealth, worldly prosperity to those who follow Jesus. His promise is that he will be with us no matter what happens, that he is the gift that far surpasses any of those things. Focusing on the stuff is the wrong way to focus. His blessing comes in his presence and his promises. I would add to this that to beware of teachers that are fascinated with the future. God told them the future. They make bold prophecies, but there's very little or no accountability. This happens a lot. When it comes to big events, world events, elections, um, they make a serious face and they claim that so-and-so is going to do this or say this or get elected or something's going to happen. Or It's either very specific or extremely vague. I think something's going to happen in the world and it's going to involve money. Okay, well, that's pretty easy to claim an accurate prophecy with that. If they're wrong, or if they're right, they take credit for it. They take credit for being right and write books and go on speaking circuits. If they're wrong, there's always a reason. There's always an excuse. The most common excuse is, well, that's what God told me, but it didn't happen because you guys didn't pray hard enough. There's really no better than gamblers. Gamblers just look at trends and projections, and they make a guess. And if they're right... They win. If not, there's always an excuse. Beware of people fascinated with the future. And in fact, beware of anyone who would name for themselves, call themselves a prophet or an apostle. That's a, that's a subtly dangerous thing to call yourself. And why would you do that? Why would you call yourself a prophet or an apostle? You'd only do that if you want people to take you seriously, right? Because it's not you, it's God. God told me, so there's nothing I can do about it. They want to raise the stakes, and increase the impact. 
And what they're really saying is, yeah, it's fine what the Bible says. We should read the Bible. It's good. But what's God saying now? And I know what God's saying now, so you should listen to me. And that's just as important as what you're reading in the Bible. It has to be. Really what it does is pulls people away from subjective or from objective truth into their subjective reality, whatever that might be. Usually it's something they want you to do for them. The only reason to say God told me is to get them to trust you, to trust them, and to pull you into whatever they, agenda they have. Beware of people who claim this authority on their own. We can't trust them. We can trust the sufficiency of Scripture because that is where we know the mind of God and the will of God. He's given us everything we need to know about who God is and what He wants us to do in His Word. This is the difference between having ears to hear and having itching ears. Okay? Ears to hear is what Jesus is talking about. If you have ears to hear, you come to the Word and you're willing to see and receive it as truth and authority and rely upon that objective reality. Itching ears are what Paul talks about at the end of his life. He wrote this letter to Timothy. It's the very last letter that he writes. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It was happening when Paul wrote this. It's happening today. People are drawing, whether they would say this or not, and they usually don't, drawing people away from the truth of Scripture and trying to make it much more about them and their ministry and their word and what they are doing instead of about relying upon God's unchanging word. So beware. Watch for the character. Watch for the accountability do people say things but are not held accountable? Or then when they are held accountable, they reject it for some reason. Watch. Most people are not speaking for God. They're speaking for themselves. We need to beware of false teachers and false prophets. Jesus said, the truth will be made known. Wisdom will be made known. And we need to watch. God's word does not change depending on culture. Uh, God has told us, this is why we don't, shouldn't be fascinated with what some people are saying is going to happen because God told us what has happened. We know that. We know that from the Bible. He's told us what is going to happen and he's told us what we need to do in the meantime. That's all we need to know. That's what he's given us. Our role is to be faithful to that, not try to seek some new, subjective, innovative, relevant word. It's from the Scripture that we get our authority. We have it, and we can trust that. The second thing that we, I think we should talk about is the nature of Jesus. Remember I told you how he uses the Old Testament to point to John and to point to himself, claiming to be God. This was on purpose. In fact, they, we know that people got it because ultimately they accused him of blasphemy because they said he claims to be God. He repeatedly made this claim throughout his ministry. What does that mean? It's the clear and consistent testimony of the Bible to talk about the Trinity. Now, when I say that, the, the, the word Trinity actually does not appear in your Bible. If you do a search, it doesn't appear anywhere. That's fine. We use that word to describe the realities that are present in the Bible. So it is a, uh, it is mysterious, 
in some ways, but it's unquestionably true. Now, one thing when we talk about the Trinity, I'm not going to have time to go through an exhaustive explanation, but God is not like anything. So the moment that anyone says, here's what God is like, it's like this, here's what the Trinity is, it's like, stop listening. Because no matter what you say after that, you're going to say something wrong. Now, I know you've probably heard try to, these clever ideas about what, I'm not going to say them out loud because I don't want you to think wrongly, but you've heard say the Trinity is like this or it's like this or it's kind of, no, wrong. There's, there's wrong. there's problems with all of those things. It's a good at faith attempt to try to explain what it's like, but it falls short in every single one. So we don't, we shouldn't talk about what God is like. We should just talk about what the Bible says about who he is. Don't say he's like this or that. He's like what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is there is one God, God has three persons, and each person is fully God. This is a good systematic way, a, a systematic theology of talking about the nature of God. First of all, there is one God, meaning well, there's not three gods. We don't worship three gods. The Old Testament repeatedly says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one God, not three. Now, God is three persons. Now, this doesn't mean that God is one God presenting himself in three different ways at different times. That's also a heresy. He is three different persons, and we see that as evidenced when Jesus was baptized. All three persons of the Trinity were present. And then each person is fully God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not parts of God. They're all fully God in and among themselves. Colossians talks about Jesus and says, in him the, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's not part of God. He is fully God. In the book of Acts, repeatedly it, it equates talking about God with talking about the Spirit. So we know from the testimony of Scripture that there is one God, he is three persons, and each person is fully God. So what does this say about Jesus? Jesus is the eternal, meaning he was never created. Some religions will teach that Jesus was born or created at Christmas time. He was made. He wasn't made. He wasn't created. He always has existed. John 1 talks about this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. So he's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh, becoming the only being in the universe that is fully and truly God and fully and truly human at the same time in the same person. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. So what that means is Jesus didn't carve off a little bit of his deity, like he's God, I'm going to shave off a little bit and glue on humanity. It means he's fully God. He added humanity to his deity, becoming fully Jesus, fully God and fully man in one being, in a single person. Now this is very important because if that's not true, then the cross means nothing. If Jesus is not fully God, he cannot bear the sins of all of the people who would believe in him. He cannot bear it. And if he were not God, his blood would not be precious and valuable enough to pay for the sins of all those who believe. But he is. His life, his sinless life, and his sinless blood has the value, the eternal value, because he is God, to pay for our sins. But because Jesus is fully human, he can stand as a substitute for humans, meaning this. When we say that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, that in our place means he stood as a substitute. 
Because he hung on the cross, we don't have to. And because he's a human, he can stand in the place of all humans who would trust and believe in him. And he can serve as the only mediator between God and man because he's the only one who is fully God and fully man. Now, these are mysteries. It's, it's hard to get our brains around some of these things. But honestly, if your God can fully be explained, it, by, if you can fully explain your God, that's not much of a God. In fact, that just proves to me that you made up your God. If someone can fully explain and understand everything about their God, that's not a real God. And this is actually a test you can use for any religion, any teaching. What does it say about the nature of God? Is it more about God or more about you? Is it more about just the things that I would like in the afterlife? And so, because I would like, love to rule over a world and have thousands of wives, well, that's what God must be like. Well, you made that God in your own, based on your own desires. So is the nature of God more about you or about God? Is salvation more about you or more about God? Every human-made religion is, begins with, what do I need to do to get to God? It starts with me, and somehow I need to make God happy or do enough things to try to get to God. The only one that's true is when God says, you can't get to me, I'm going to come to you. That's the difference. That's how you know if it's a false religion. And then, ultimately, who gets the glory? Do you get the glory, or does God get the glory? The nature of Jesus, the Trinity, are mysteries, but it's okay to embrace mystery. God has told us that his ways are higher than our ways. He has told us what we need to know about who he is, but he's also said there are some things you just simply cannot understand, and that's okay. Here's how I try to illustrate this. I hope it's not too simplistic. Um, point to your ear or your nose, your shoulder. You can do that, right? Point to your soul. Not the sole of your foot. I mean, S-O-U-L, your soul. We believe that we have a soul, right? That our soul is part of who we are as a person. It's more than just skin and bones and blood and muscles. We have a soul. How is your soul linked to your body? How does it make you you? Right? I don't know. So you're saying you don't even know how you exist? Right. We don't totally fully understand that. It's fine to embrace then when the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. That the Trinity is one God in three persons. Mystery is okay. In fact, it's kind of arrogant, isn't it, to say, if I can't understand it, it must not be real. Jesus, thankfully, clearly made his uh, deity real for us. The third thing is the nature of ministry. They made false accusations about Jesus. They told him that he, they basically said, because he hung out with sinners, then he must have been a sinner also. But Jesus never sinned. He never participated in sin. He didn't approve of sin. He didn't endorse sin. He didn't celebrate sin. He always called people out of sin to repent and follow him. So that means we can't use Jesus as an excuse to participate in sin in order to reach people for Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, we're supposed to love people like Jesus did, but on Jesus' terms, which means you don't get drunk to minister to drunks. You don't engage in sexual immorality to try to minister to sexual addicts. You don't profane the name of God to relate somehow to foul-mouthed, foul obscene co-workers. 
You don't need to march in a gay pride parade to gain credibility with the LGBTQ community. Some pastors have convinced themselves that the only way that they can reach these two people who want to get married, and they're both guys or they're both women, is to perform a same-sex marriage for discipleship. They've been twisted in their minds to think that that's okay by endorsing and celebrating this sin. That's the only way that they can reach them. You can see how this doesn't make sense because at some point, even if you do reach someone with this, at some point, you're going to go back to the Bible and you're going to say, well, the Bible really says you need to give that up. And they're going to say, wait a second, I thought you said Jesus was okay with this. You did it too, so why should I give it up? It's a bait and switch. It doesn't work. We need to treat people, all people, with love and grace and mercy and compassion, but not compromise. We need to love people as being lost in sin and desperately need of a, of a Savior. The phrase, love the sinner and hate the sin, is important. It's important to remember. It's important for us to remember because it's true. Love the person. We cannot love the sin. But it doesn't work for the person you're talking with if they're not a believer. Because why? They see their sin as part of themselves. It's their identity. So if you say, I love you, but I hate your sin, you're essentially saying, I hate you. They can't separate it. You don't really love me if you don't love everything about me. So we need to think that way, but just realize it doesn't work for them. Unless we, on their terms, fully embrace and celebrate their sin, they're not convinced. God made me this way. Jesus loves me. Why can't you love me? And it gets people all like, what do I do? Because I'm supposed to love them, but ah! Church, we cannot let the world define what Jesus' love looks like. We must not love them on their terms, but on Jesus' terms, according to his word. And the the only truly loving thing we can do is what he did. Call them out of sin and rescue them, according to his word. That's the model of his ministry. He met with bad people, but he didn't do bad things. He reached out to sinners, but he never sinned. He loved people on his terms, always with eternity in mind. He never compromised. He never told someone your sin is fine. He never, he never endorsed it. He never celebrated it. He went to them to rescue them. I say the nature of ministry because this is how we need to approach. We're getting bombarded and assaulted all the time with this pressure. And people even who claim to be religious leaders are just calling a compromise all over the place. That's the only way they're going to listen to us. That's the only way you're going to have a way to to, to help them. And they're abandoning the truth of the gospel in the meantime. You've got to hear me fully. Love and grace and mercy and compassion and a desire for people to, to, to help and truly meet with people, but never compromising what the Bible says. Not celebrating or condoning or giving permission for people to live in sin, calling them out of it, is the only way to rescue them from eternity in hell. It's life and death. And we need to be the ones to stand firm and say, I love you too much to let you continue in the sin. We need to love people on Jesus' terms, not on their terms. Jesus knew this would be hard. That's why he said wisdom is justified by her deeds. People will see the truth in us now, or they'll see the truth when Jesus returns, one or the other. 
They might reject the gospel. They might reject our attempt to love them and care for them. They might reject us altogether, completely. But the truth will prevail in the end. Jesus will be vindicated. He will make things right. Let this serve as strengthening our conviction to fulfill God's mission to reach the lost and strengthening our confidence in trusting God's justice against those who ultimately will reject him. God is unbreakably faithful to those whom he has saved into his family, and he calls us to be faithful to him until he returns. Would you please pray with me this morning? Lord, we are so grateful that you've given us the sure and final word We thank you that no matter what assaults us, no matter what people say, no matter how people try to twist what you actually did, what you actually said, we know the truth. Fill us with the courage, the conviction to stand firm on what we believe. To love people, to have mercy and grace and compassion toward people, but to do what you did, to call them out of their sin, to show them the light and the way so that you can save them and rescue them from their sin. Help us as a church to be instruments of that grace. As we walk with you, as we are presented with these difficult situations, that we would trust you that the truth will be made known now or later. And help us to rest in the confidence that you give us. We love you and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?